0: Today's scripture reading comes from Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be terrified, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. This is the word of God.
1: Last week we left off, Vision Sunday is about uh, strategy, it's about vision, Um, it's about uh, the way this next year and how it's going to unfold. None of these things matter um, without the humility to really walk in the Lord in a what he means when he says to abide in him, and none of it matters if there's no courage to trust him. It takes courage. A certain type of person, and only a certain type of person that God calls and strengthens and encourages um, is really to have that type of courage uh, that's demonstrated uh, throughout the scriptures uh, in the lives of of Christians throughout history. Now, we're going to look at three things here about what that means. The first is we're going to look at the challenge of God here. Secondly, we're going to look at the promise of God, and lastly, we're going to look at the instruction of God—the challenge, the promise, and the instruction. Very pivotal passage. Uh, I know that throughout history, it's it served to encourage many pastors, many leaders, uh, many everyday people in their everyday world. No matter where you sit, no matter where you are in your life. First, we're going to look at the challenge. Now, this is the context. The Israelites, they are literally crossing over into a new era in their history. And uh, they're, they're entering into the promised land, preparing to do that. But in order to do that, they need to cross the Jordan River. And in verses 1 to 2, uh, they're literally in between two mountains. So they're in a ravine. And when you're in a ravine like that, There's a a rushing wind that blows through. And uh, on one hand, you have your enemies on one side, and you're met by this incredible river, the Jordan River. How do you cross? Now, if you're crossing the Jordan River, uh, you have this wind that's blowing against you. Now, this is men and women and children, and they're crossing over this river. And this is not a trickle. This is not the, what you see in the Schuylkill River uh, here in Philadelphia, not today at least, right? Because the Jordan River empties into, it falls into the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea is about 1,000 feet below sea level. And so that current in that, in that water is, is incredibly strong. So if that wind blows you or your child and you fall into the river, you're, you're going to be, you're goner. And uh, so it's treacherous. It's a journey. And you got the raging waters on one end. you got the enemies on the other side. The wind blowing through. It's a treacherous time, a huge endeavor. And God calls Joshua to lead his people. Young Joshua is being called to lead his people. The entire nation, men, women, children, crossing to enter into the promised land. And they're doing it without their previous leader, Moses, who has been with them for decades. All right, they're doing it without Moses that's the challenge. What's God's promise? In verse 3, God says, I'm going to give you every place where you set foot. Verse 4, he says, your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the Euphrates River all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, the Great Sea. The promise is land. The promise is, you will have a home, you will have a place, you will have a resting place, you will have a dwelling place, he says. Now, much of this land at the time belonged to the Hittites, right? But verse 5, he says, no one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. That's the promise. God will be their rescue. God will be their refuge. God will be their their presence. And where he is is the safest place to be, is is what he's saying. Where I am, where you are, I will be with you. And that means that you are safe. You are secure. I will be your protector. I will be your deliverer. God is always trustworthy, he's saying. You can trust him at his word. What he's saying is that in any crossing in your life, in any, in any place where there is uncertainty, where there's, where there's fear or anxiety, reasons to have fear or anxiety, in any moment where you're walking in a treacherous part in your journey, my presence will go with you. Now, you have to remember, oftentimes, the Israelites, they're not searching for God, They're not praising God. They're not thanking God. They're not seeking God. They're not acknowledging God. God is saying, it's not because of anything you've done, it's all by sheer grace. All by sheer grace, I'm going to give you a home, I'm going to give you a resting place. Now, what God is saying is, this is a promise to you that goes back as far as Moses. He's saying, I'm faithful. The promise is only as good as the person who's making the promise. And God is saying, I'm good for it. I will be faithful. I'm faithful to every promise. You know, right before this narrative, you have the Israelites for 40 years wandering through the desert. And they were wandering because that physical wandering through a very dry land where there are many dangers is pretty much representation of their spiritual wandering away from God. And so as they're going away from God, there's danger and treachery. And at the same time, as they come close to God, they're safe. Even though the land is empty and the land is dry, and God is always leading them, and He's always present, and He has always shown Himself to be powerful and strong and with them and for them. Throughout every suffering, throughout every temptation, every enemy, God's people, even though they wander from God, Through the desert, God has always delivered them. He's their shepherd, always delivered them. How did they cross? Chapters later, chapter 3, you have, uh, he tells them, basically, you're going to take the ark, which is a representation of God's presence. I want you to bring it before you, have it always go before you. Then you would have these two priests that would stand in this water, right? And the water, as it comes, will kind of stand on itself, and the land will open up, and the people are able to walk through. That's what he says. That's what happens. These priests would stand, the waters would stop, and the people are able to cross. And keep in mind, Moses's life, Moses's leadership, Moses's, the time of Moses when he was leading his people, it wasn't easy. It was never easy. They were walking through dry, enemy-ridden territory, God was never promising an easy life. He doesn't say, I want you to, I'm going to be with you, and that's, that means that your life is going to be fun and easy. Now, there are times in life when it's fun. There are times in the Christian life, it's fun. It feels fulfilling. It feels like there's meaning and purpose. But the thing is, I mean, the everyday moments, everyday part of life, there are dry times. There are times when you feel absolutely unfulfilled. You know, I, when I came into pastoral ministry, I never... And this is honest to, honest to God truth. I mean, I never intended to be in pastoral ministry. Uh, and uh, I, part of the reason is because all I saw growing up were pastors in the church just getting beat up and congregations always fighting with each other. I didn't want to be a part of that. I don't want to be the object or the subject of that. I don't want to be a part of that. Right? And so uh, it's, a lot of us, it's like part of cultural trauma. Uh, so to speak, you know, growing up in the church. uh, And it's not just the city. I mean, it's all over the, it's across the board. You see this. And it doesn't matter which culture you're in, they're, all cultures are fighting and, and pastors are getting beat up. They say what's amazing statistic, right? 98% of, of pastors have suffered some form of depression in their lives. And so, you know, I, you know, I didn't want to do that. It's not fun. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. Even i love Metro has been a blast. I love Metro. There's no other church I would ever be a part of. I've, I tell my pastors, if Metro ever goes under, you'll never hear from me again, right? And that's because that's, you're laughing, but the thing is, it's the truth. That's the truth. Uh, um, let's not test me on that, right? But that's the truth. Now, um, what, I, what I mean by that is, you know, I came, there are times when you, as a pastor, you don't feel fulfilled. And in your lives, there are moments in life that are so mundane and so dry. Um, I imagine um, specific People, types of people in specific moments in their lives and stages in their lives where it, those stretches are very, very long. Those dry stretches could be very, very long. It's like there's it's been cloudy for years in your life. God never promised Moses an easy life, and Moses' life was not easy, and God is not promising us an easy life. He's not promising prosperity, but he promises his presence in that uncertainty. He promises his presence in that brokenness. He promises his presence. He will never forsake you. He will never leave you when you are in pain, in your pain. pain. Moses suffered all his life. He never had a home. He led people through a desert that had been wandering for decades, which was really, I think if you take a plane or or some some sort of public form of transportation today, it would take no more than two hours, and yet they had been wandering for 40 years in the desert, and yet he wrote in Psalm 90, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. He's reflecting on God's faithfulness. He's reflecting on God's promise. And he's saying, you are faithful. And you are our dwelling place. I have no earthly home. I have no physical home. You are our dwelling place. In other words, I have no place to sleep. I have no place to rest my head. No place for myself. You are that place. You are the only place I can go. You are my only security. You are my home. What is home? Home is a place where you can rest your head. Home is a place where you can let your hair down. Home is a place where uh, you, are, you feel safe. Home is a place where you are secure. And, and Moses says, when I look around me, there's no place that's like that, but you are the place where I can let my hair down. A lot of us pray more so than uh, in a place where we can let our hair down. We pray uh, like we are, we are in a museum or a confessional, you know, Moses says, "You are my city of rest. You are my city of peace." The very word Jerusalem connotes that. Salem is is, comes from the Hebrew word shalom. That word shalom. Is a very holistic word that represents holistic peace. It's not just peace, as in, you know, I feel good and I feel at rest. It's about provision and safety and rest and freedom and security and justice. And you bundle all those things together, and the city of God is to be one day a place where all those things are inherent in the city. There will be no evil, there'll be no sin, there'll be no tears, you see? Later on, uh, you have Jeremiah the prophet because God's people in their rebellion and their disobedience, for 70 years they were exiled outside of their land. And Jeremiah, after the people of God had been exiled out of Israel in their recklessness, in their sinfulness, they saw this exile as punishment. And there were false prophets running around and basically tell them, hey, create these enclaves and stay to yourselves and don't mix in. And, and, and basically we're being punished. And yet Jeremiah says... God is with you, and he has plans for you to prosper you in this city. Yes, you are exiled, but seek the peace of this city. Seek the shalom of this city you're in. By the way, that is really at the heart of why Metro exists, why we are planted in the city, why we want to plant other sites in and around the city, why we hope to develop people as part of our vision to plant churches Indigenous, indigenously in the city, throughout the city, is because we are seeking the prosperity of the city, and we believe that where God is is the safest place to be. That is the place of rest, a dwelling place. In a sense, what God is saying is that Israel, even Israel, is a place of rest. It's not your true home. God is our dwelling place. So uh, it's not your neighborhood. It's not your home. It's not, it's not the life that, that life that you want to live. It's not home but we work so hard to get that on our own. We work tirelessly, we're filled with pride when we succeed, we're filled with depression when we fail, and in between we're filled with anxiety. This is a generation marked by anxiety and depression. Scholars are saying that. Commentators, social commentators are saying that. More than any other time in history, not just in the history of America, but the history of the world, we're constantly fighting and jostling for position and we feel great when we succeed for a moment, and yet then that just makes the crash harder because we are so depressed. It's an anxiety and depression lit in society. But God here reminds that we have another land that's promised, a promise. It's the same promise that he gave to Moses. As he was with Moses, he says, I am here with you. God is our dwelling place. Where God is, is our place of rest, is a place of joy. It's our shalom. That's what he's saying. In your anxieties, in your fears, in your uncertainties in life, oftentimes we're, we're wrestling and we are pouring sweat and tears, hours, to get ourselves out of a mess or out of a jam, to get ourselves into a particular place we need that. We said we absolutely need that. What are you doing? You are just pouring your heart. You're really wrestling. All that wrestling, all that struggling, God says that struggle. You're struggling with me because you're looking for peace and security, and you're fighting for it when all you really needed was my presence. My presence can be your a reality that's even more visible, uh, even more real than your visible reality. I can be your home. You can hide in me. You can rest in me. You can find joy in me first. That's the promise. What's the instruction? Verses 6 through 9, he goes from what is what we call the indicative to the imperative. He says, three times you read, be strong and courageous. Verse 6, be strong and courageous. Verse 7, be strong and very courageous. Verse 9, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. Today's generation is marked in a generation that's marked by anxiety and depression. This is incredibly important. Why was Joshua afraid? He knew God. God's in his life. He trusted God. And it's because oftentimes when life gets hard and you're faced with challenges, you start to doubt things. You start to doubt why you're there. You start to doubt maybe even implicitly, at least, is God really working through this? Is this really, because this stuff isn't good that I'm going through. The command is incredibly difficult. For Joshua, it was to cross the Jordan River with an entire nation of people. Sometimes that commands that we need to follow to obey are very, very difficult, and life is very, very hard, and life being hard, that oftentimes tempts us to not obey, on top of the fact that the command itself is hard, those things put together, wow, God is challenging us. We forget the promise. So here, God gives Joshua instruction, instruction that will enable him to be able to navigate life's challenges and struggles, because life is hard, because the command is difficult. Where did Joshua find strength? He's instructed in verse 7. He said, God says, be careful to obey all the law, the law of Moses. He says, be careful to obey all the law. Do not turn from it, not to your right, not to your left. Do not let the book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Now, there's a lot of applicative things that we can, we can draw from that, but this is the key. What God is saying is the key to dealing with the uncertainties of your life The key to navigating the failures and the losses in your life, the key to addressing what you believe are the needs, the great needs in your life, the key to handling your anxiety is to remember the Word of God, to know the Word of God, to trust the Word of God. Not just trust in it, not just trust in God, but to trust His Word, to take Him at His Word. And, you know, a Christian is not just someone who believes that God exists. That's not a Christian. We're going to be doing a series sometime in the the near future about the five types of people that exist in the church that believe they're Christians but are not Christians. The key is not knowing about God. The key is not knowing things about God in a way that, hey, I do believe this generally. Does it shape you? Does it transform your life? Because if it does, that will give you a particular type of humility to obey because there's a trust there and a particular type of courage to obey because there's a trust there. Does the word shape you? Ernest Becker is a great a philosopher, a social commentator. He wrote a book in the, in the 1900s, early 1900s um, called The Nile of Death. And uh, it's a book that was out of print, but came back recently into print uh, not too long ago. I think uh, lately there's been a greater fascination over his writing as a Pulitzer Prize winning writer, an incredible piece of work. Mainly what he says is this, everything that we're doing in our lives, Everything we're doing, everything we're pursuing, we're just driven, and we're constantly present. It's, it's inevitable. It's to fight off the pending reality that, that we're just a collection of molecules that have collided against each other randomly in a chaotic kind of way, and have become this living organism, and we're staving off the reality that one day it's all going to come to an end. We're staving off the reality that one day we're going to die, the inevitable reality that we will pass away. And so what we're doing is we're working and we're laboring and we're using our jobs and we're using our romance life. We're, using, we're buying large homes, these great uh, neighborhoods that we find these days in our city. And we try to get into this. We try to jostle our way into these things as a way of averting our minds the reality that none of these things can ever protect you. It it gives us a sense of control when life is utterly out of control. You cannot control these things. It gives us a sense of control in a world that is completely uncontrollable, a life, control in a life that is completely uncontrollable. And uh, gives you the sense that you can protect yourself in a life that is completely, in a world that is completely insecure and unpredictable. And that's how life is. What does the scripture teach us? The scripture reminds us of our true home. Real reality. Real life. Because if you're broken, the scripture reminds us of what it means to be redeemed in Christ. If you're just captivated by sin, just bound to sin, wandering from God all the time, the scriptures remind you of God's mercy and his grace, how he's made a way for us. If you suffered loss, the scriptures teach us about what it means to be healed in Christ. Christ's presence, his person, as a living reminder that even death cannot defeat you when you are in him. Union with Christ. Intimacy with Christ. That's the key. And the Bible shows us what God did for us to become intimate with him how we can be intimate with Christ. The Bible reveals God's faithfulness in Christ. And as you approach Jesus, as you see Jesus, as you behold Jesus, you look at his beauty, you look at his goodness, you look at his faithfulness, and you see this through his sacrifice. You see this through his obedience in his suffering. In his suffering, you see this. You're able to see your weakness and your sinfulness and your brokenness that runs so much deeper than we Are willing to admit at times and yet it reminds us again and again of God's promise our position in him where we are headed where is our home in order for us to trust and believe and obey we need to grasp a reality that is more real than our visible reality and so centuries later Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed And he tells his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. I am preparing a place for you. What's he saying? It's a promise. He's saying, in me, with me, you have a place. You have a home. I don't forget. I will always hold true to my promises. He says, do not worry. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't be overwhelmed. What's he saying? You have a home. You have a place. Don't be afraid. In other words, be strong and courageous. Because he's sending the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to come and he will be with you. You will, wherever you are, in your darknesses, in your brokenness, in sin, if you have placed your hope and faith in Jesus, God is with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you, he says. But then he goes on and he says, there's going to come a moment where I will be completely alone, where even you will abandon me, you will betray me, and I will be completely alone. And he starts to pray for his disciples, and in chapter 17 of the Gospel According to John, you have this amazing, what we call the high priestly prayer of Jesus. There he prays, and he says to his father, he says, I want them, that's the church, that's his people, I want them to have my intimacy, the intimacy that I have with you. I want them to have, I want them to be with me where you are. I want them to have that place, the place that I am, the place that I hold. I want them to have that position. I want them to be with me there. I want them to have that glory. How does it happen? How does it happen? Well, in order for you to have the place, he has to give up the place. And so at Gethsemane, Jesus is praying. At the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he's betrayed, he's praying, and he's alone. He asks his disciples to pray with him and for him, and they won't. They fall asleep on him. And so he's alone, and there he's experiencing the deep darkness because it has begun. God is about to, the the death march is beginning for Jesus, and he says, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. He's telling us, do not let your hearts be troubled, and yet he's saying, my soul is troubled. It's overwhelmed to the point of death. What's he saying? Thy suffering right now, I'm in such, I'm in deep darkness, the ultimate terror, and it's overwhelming me. What's the terror? On the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, in that moment, the father is separating from the son, abandoning his son, rejecting his son, leaving him for dead. God is abandoning his own son, Jesus. This is his home, he's saying. You are my refuge. You are my dwelling place. And now on earth, he says, the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. Foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests. And yet the Son of Man has no place. In other words, he's homeless. He has left his home. And now on the cross, he says, I have no home. I have no home. This is my ultimate home. You are our dwelling place throughout the generations. And yet I've lost you. And God is no longer with me. And so he's suffering the ultimate unrest. And that's why, although Jerusalem is the holy city of God's dwelling place, he was cast out of the city and crucified outside of the city on a cross. He was cast out completely. And in that moment there, he's suffering hell. What is hell? Hell is complete separation from God. And so there is the ultimate darkness Complete separation from God. Why did he do it? Jesus lost the Father so that we could have the Father. Jesus Christ lost his intimacy with God so that we could have intimacy with God. Jesus Christ suffered the ultimate unrest so that we could have the shalom of God, the rest of God, the dwelling place of God. And that means that Jesus Christ became cosmically homeless so that you will have a place. Let that be your vision. Let that be your peace. Let that be your hope in the midst of momentary and incremental change in your life and and in a way that sometimes you suffer because of that change and you are tempted to walk away because of that change and you feel like you don't have the strength to move on because of that. To the end, you know, even as he is dying, God has departed from him and turned his face from him. He's quoting scripture on the cross. He's reciting Psalm 22. To the end, the word of God is giving him strength. That's what kept him going. To the end, even as God the Father has departed from him, Jesus Christ is still trusting him. He says, my God, my God, he trusts him. To the end, he's trusting his word and God's promise of what he will do through him, through the brokenness, through the darkness, and if he's doing that that through Jesus Christ, and he's done that through all the fathers in the Bible that we see, surely he will do that through you and your darkness. God can work in it. And he is present. Can you trust him? Until you see Jesus, until you see Jesus, the son of God, suffering on the cross for you, for you, not for us per se, for you, until that's personal in a way that shapes you. And you have to preach that to yourself in a way that it shapes you, until you see that. Until you see Jesus on the cross suffering for you and still trusting God through his word, even in the midst of his ultimate darkness, a darkness that you in him will never experience, ultimate brokenness, yes, we are broken, but until you see that he suffered the ultimate brokenness for you, a brokenness you will never experience, what can ruin you? What will ever destroy you? Until you see Jesus on the cross, suffering the ultimate lostness, he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Until you see him experiencing the cosmic abandonment, you will not be able to trust God at his word when you are broken or lost or abandoned or when times are uncertain. Trust Jesus and his word. He obeyed to the point of death, trusting to the point of death. So in times of weakness and fear, God is with you. God is with you. That's the promise. That's how you know it's good for you. Every time you look to Christ, you see the beauty of Jesus in his character, in his kingliness, and yet you see the beauty in his sacrifice. You see that there's beauty in his blood poured out for you. You can trust that God will never abandon you. You can pray, oh Lord, I am weak, I am broken, I am suffering, and I am sinful. Give me the strength and the faith and the courage to do what you desire of me in this moment and on and on. That's what makes you great in him. May your strength be perfected in my weakness should be our prayer. Can we as a church pray that? Let's pray that right now.